0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and begin in verse 10 this morning, and read through verse 12. It's funny, I had someone ask me the other day whether I only preached sermons on one verse of the Bible. New to the church, and haven't seen me preach much, much longer passages, so... I was happy to inform them that that does happen as well. But today you get three verses, so just so you know, it's not just one. Uh, here are the the final remaining verses to the Sermon on the Mount uh, in regard to the Beatitudes. And uh, one of the harder ones, for sure. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, by your Spirit, To receive uh, the words of life, to receive the faith uh, that comes to us as a gift from heaven, to give us the mind of Christ, to live and to keep in step with the Spirit of God. We pray that you would teach us what it means to please you in all ways. Help us even to know what it means to be blessed by you and to live a life that is truly fulfilling and abundant in joy. Father, we ask that you would give us the wisdom that comes from heaven this day. Through your word, help us to receive it with faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a movie that came out a few years ago that I never actually watched because it received such dismal reviews. It's a B-rated, maybe C-rated movie, if you will. But I found the premise somewhat intriguing, so I read about it. The movie, simply entitled Upside Down, is a typical Romeo and Juliet story if you will, but instead of uh, two lovebirds coming from estranged families, they came from different worlds altogether. In fact, uh, one world was sitting on top of the other world. If you can imagine that, Uh, so that in order for uh, the young man and the young woman to meet, they both had to climb up a very tall mountaintop and then look up at each other. That's how they met, if you will. So you have to sort of You know, forget everything that you know about physics and astronomy and all those other things because it's fantasy after all. Uh, But ultimately, to see how these two people would be disoriented by the world of their perceived lover, if you will. Uh, Ultimately, uh, sometimes seeing something concrete like that or thinking through it in a concrete manner helps us to understand the more abstract ideas of competing worldviews. Literally, you have two worlds that are at odds with each other in every way to where it's, it's uh, disorienting to even think the way that the other person does. It's all upside down. It's all backwards. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, and the reason why this imagery stuck out to me is because I was reading through the book of Acts again recently, and I remember reading about the mob in Thessalonica Uh, If you remember after Paul and Silas preached there, there were a number of people that formed a mob and dragged a young man named Jason down the street along with his brothers because they were aiding and abetting the Apostle Paul uh, in his labors. And, And the accusation that was brought against Paul and Silas in Thessalonica was this. They had turned the world upside down in saying that there is another king named Jesus. In their minds, the whole world was backwards the way Christians saw things compared to the way they saw things. And it it didn't make sense. In fact, it seemed utter foolishness and even dangerous to them because it was not the way they understood the world. Their worldview was totally different. In their minds, Christianity was completely backwards And that the way of Christ was so radical that it could actually harm people, especially given the fact that Christ was claiming to be their king when everyone knew that Caesar was the unrivaled king, that's what everyone was taught to believe within the Roman Empire. So you can see why this would be a problem. Uh, it's a, a huge problem. So as we're as we're studying the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount, I've re- repeated it to you a few times how radical each one of these Beatitudes really are. Uh, everything that the world has taught you to believe concerning the good life, concerning the things that ought to bring you joy and happiness. Christ is saying the exact opposite in every possible way. And and if you read through them you'll see that he's blessing all the things that you normally would think, oh that's horrible, I wouldn't want that. That's a curse, that's not a blessing. And yet he's calling it a blessing, what the world saying is a curse. And so we can see that the apex of these blessings, the the highest beatitude Jesus saves for last. The greatest blessing, in fact, it's so great, he repeats it twice, it's a double blessing compared to every other beatitude in this passage. And yet, in our worldly minds, we would think this is absolutely the worst they could get in every way. Why would you want this at all? Of course, persecution isn't a blessing that most people are actively seeking in their lives, right? (laughs) Right? I want to be blessed. I want to be persecuted. Certainly not something that Christians fully understand even when they first receive the gospel. Uh, most people are not taught to count the cost, as Jesus said, and to take up their cross and follow Jesus. And even when they when they hear these words, it doesn't really make sense. And I, I think all of us, to some extent, when we hear these words, when we are new believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we with that, like that sounds that sounds okay, I guess. You know, I, I don't fully understand what I'm getting into here. It's it's only uh, as we grow up in our faith that we begin to love Christ more and understand what He's saying and what He's calling us to. But I can tell you from the very beginning, the Scriptures made it very plain what Jesus was telling His disciples. The Sermon on the Mount, from the very beginning in Matthew, we're, we're seeing He's not sort of sugarcoating anything here. He's not uh, using broad strokes. He's very specifically saying, you're going to be persecuted. And it's a blessing that you're going to be persecuted. He tells the, the 12 disciples, even before he sends them out throughout all the towns of Israel, he tells them in advance this. He says, you will be brought into many courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. He tells them tells them this before he even sends them out two by two throughout the towns of Israel. This is what will happen, he says. So he's not saying, hey, you know, everything's going to be great for you from now on. This is this is what he's saying. In the same way, if you remember in Acts chapter 9 when he tells Paul that he's called him to be his ambassador, if you will. He tells him, I've called you that you might what? Suffer for my name's sake. And, and, and Paul repeats that three times in in the book of Acts and in later one of the epistles, he's saying, I knew from the very beginning God had called me to suffer. Now, of course, this is told to someone who has been causing other people suffering. He has been persecuting Christians, and now God has changed him in one split moment of time and has made him want to be one with those who are sufferers, one with those who are being Persecuted. Even uh, for those of you who have been studying in your small groups, we've all been going to the book of Galatians. And Paul is starting to prove his apostleship primarily by his sufferings, by his persecution. He's he's pitting himself against the Judaizers, against these false apostles who are living a life of ease and are well loved by everyone. And he's saying, The proof and the pudding is the fact that I'm being persecuted. I'm hated. I'm not trying to please man, I'm trying to please God, and therefore, I suffer. He's saying, essentially, that's proof that I am called by God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, he he shares with the believers there, he says, We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed in every way, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, for always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He's continually telling them that I've suffered. You should listen to what I have to say because I've suffered with Christ. I bear in in, in my own body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says. He told the Corinthians earlier on in his first epistle, he says, we have become the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Now, I'm sure that's what we all aspire to be as followers of Christ, just scummy, trashy people in the eyes of the world. Yes, please, sign me up for that. Right? Is that not what you aspire to be, considered horrible in the eyes of the world? Of course not. We, When we really begin to understand what Jesus is calling us to here, we have to have a change of heart. Something has to happen in Side of us. The Spirit has to begin to give us more of the mind of Christ, and we're not going to accept this. In fact, we're going to reject everything that He's saying, and like in the parable of the sower, we're going to be like those who said, Yes, I love Jesus, but then as soon as trouble comes, we're like, Ah, maybe I don't love Him so much. There are other things that I love more. I mean, none of us in the beginning of our walk with Christ really get this concept, but the more we grow, the more we know and love Jesus, the more we'll understand it. In fact, this beatitude might at first uh, seem kind of contradictory to what he had just given us in the previous beatitude. If you remember when he told us to be peacemakers, right? You would think that if he's calling us to be peacemakers that we would enjoy peace with other people instead of persecution. But again, if you remember from last week, we said it's, it's we're, we're called to make peace with others as much as it's up to us. There's no guarantee that they want to make peace with us. In fact, some people will adamantly refuse to make peace with us because of the gospel of Christ, and some will actively work against us and seek to abuse us because they want to stop the gospel of Christ altogether. He tells them in Matthew chapter 10, Uh, Verse 34, that Christ himself did not come to bring peace to all men, but rather to bring the sword. That sometimes even within your own family, there will be those who seek to harm you, to out you in some way, to cause persecution against you because you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and they have not. At times, even that intimate relationship with a friend, with a family member, even that can be ripped apart because of the gospel of Christ. So he's, he's told us to be peacemakers as much as it's up to us, but truth of the matter is there will always be some that don't want to make peace with us and will hate us because of, of Jesus. Strangely enough, there are many times in which people don't even know why they're against you. And why they're so angry with you. I've I've talked to a number of people that were angry with me when I started to talk to them about Christ. And I honestly don't think they knew why they were angry, but they were. In, in fact, if you think about it, even the way Jesus and Stephen, Stephen pray before they're about to die, both of them say the same thing. Father, forgive them for what? They don't know what they're doing. And yet they still hate us. They're still trying to hurt us. They're trying to kill us, even though they don't know what they're doing. So I shared with you a few weeks ago that... Uh, when Ellen and I went to the Grand Canyon, it reminded me of the Beatitudes and sort of uh, the, the need to go down before you go up. So the idea that you have to be humbled and mourn over your sins and, and go down into the depths of your depravity to, to, to confront the, the, the sinfulness within before you can start to go up God's holy hill and grow in the godly ways, right? And uh, it's true. It's, it's, it's more down before you go up. But what I didn't tell you about our climb back up to the top of the Grand Canyon was that uh, what happened on the very last leg of the trip, um, with only about a mile left to go, the rim finally in sight after 20 miles of misery, sore and exhausted, <laughs> I'm, I'm delirious at this point, <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, we come to a sudden halt. We can't go any further. Because just above us, on the, the mountain just uh, higher than us, is a big horn sheep, ram. Big horned ram, who for some reason doesn't like the fact that we're there. And begins to charge us and kick rocks at us that are falling off the side of the cliff, right? and uh anyway he was so upset by our presence that he jumped from there down to our path and stood right in front of us and was ready to charge us again and uh at this point i'm like i don't care just kill me i'm i'm so <laughs> i mean literally i was just like i don't care. i can't move i'm not running I don't, I don't care whatever just hit me i'm done and um anyway so he just sort of stared us down and ellen was you know ready to go she was still i was just like you know whatever just get me out of here um. finally after what maybe a minute maybe two minutes he, decide, he gives up he just gets tired of you know he knows we're not going to do anything but what we didn't know at least I didn't know because I was delirious was the fact that uh, right above us was a, a female and a young lamb and he was protecting them and he thought we were trying to hurt them in some way or you know endangering that space and of course we had nothing to do with that whatsoever and he had no intention of you know, trying to stop us from finishing the climb to get up. He didn't care whether or not we ever made it out of there. He didn't care whether uh, we finished our our, our hike. His issue was he was trying to protect something that was valuable to him, and somehow we encroached upon what he thought was valuable. And it it made me think of the opposition that Christians often face from unbelievers. I, I can tell you without any doubt whatsoever that not all unbelievers are actively and intentionally trying to hurt Christians when they persecute them. In fact, I don't think many of them even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. They just know for some reason something is very valuable to them and now what you're saying or what you're doing is a threat to that. And It's not that they're against Christianity. It's just that they want something else more. And uh, it's a clash of cultures. Again, it's a clash of world views. I mean, think of it this way. The, in the region of the Gerasenes, do you remember... Um, Jesus is is confronting this demon possessed man with many spirits inside of him, and when the demons ask to be sent out into the herd of pigs, he agrees to do that, and and all of a sudden the demons go into the pigs and they rush down the cliff and 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 die. And if you remember, the town is very upset with him, and they they beg him to leave and never come back, not because of what he said. Not because of his teachings, but simply because they didn't give a flip about the guy with the demon possession. All they cared about was their pigs, because they lost the value of those pigs. And we're talking lots of pigs here, lots of money were wrapped up, in them, and he just took out their livestock, basically. And so, it's a form of persecution. Well, the same thing happens in the city of Philippi. If you remember when the Apostle Paul goes into the city, and you know it's the same place where Lydia comes to faith in Christ, the jailer comes to faith in Christ. Well, there's also a young girl who is a slave who is also demon-possessed. And she's telling fortunes for people, and, and the two men that own her are making money off of her. And all of a sudden, Paul sees her, and she starts to say things demonic to him, and Paul immediately casts her out. Casts the demon out of her, that is. And she comes to her senses. And you would think, wow, everybody would just be so joyous and and this is great. Immediately the owners are upset. They've lost money. And so they turn against him. Same thing happens again and again. We see the same thing happen in the city of Ephesus. Again, an entire riot breaks out in the streets against Paul and Silas and against all believers, basically because the Apostle Paul is now teaching against idolatry and there's one man whose name is Demetrius who who's making all of his money off of selling silver idols in the image of Diana or Artemis depending on which version of the god um whether it's Greek or Latin the point is he's lost money and his fellow brothers in that industry have lost money they don't care what Paul's saying it has nothing to do with that it has to do with the fact that they've lost money and so they turn against and start begin to persecute paul and and the brothers uh, to, to me the 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 passage that 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 sort of fleshes this out more than any others is revelation eighteen when it begins to describe again i've shared with this this with you before when it begins to describe the role of the harlot of Babylon, the harlot of Babylon has basically in league the scriptures say not only with the the leaders of the governments in the world, but also in league with all the merchants of the world who are making money off of her prostitution, off of her lust and sexual idolatry and sin. To the point where it says that when she's finally dealt with and cast into the pit, it says the merchants are weeping. They're crying. They're so full of sadness and, and bitter tears because they've made so much money off of her and they're upset with Christianity. They're upset with Christ. They don't, they, you know, they don't want anything to do with him. All they care about is the money. And I I, I tell you that that's one reason oftentimes that people will attack Christianity. It has nothing to do with necessarily with what Jesus is saying so much as it has to do with the money that they've lost. On other instances... It's the lust for power rather than for money that can cause believers to be persecuted uh, in the church. Uh, In every tyrannical regime, there's always uh, someone in authority who wants to persecute the church, who wants to persecute Christ, mainly because they expect blind obedience to whatever they command. And the minute you don't give them what they want, you receive that persecution, right? It, It happens Again and again, they they want uniformity in all of their subjects. If you don't do what everyone else is doing, you're going to get persecuted. In the early days of the Roman Empire, all that was asked of its citizens, you just had to offer some incense in some sort of false facade of worship to Caesar. It was considered an act of worship. but It was just, I mean, literally, you burn something, boom, okay, we're, we're done. That's all you had to do. Christians wouldn't do it. And immediately, they're being burned alive because of it. Simply because they would not fall in line with what everyone else was doing in, the, in, in, in that realm. Same thing happens again a couple times. Daniel and his three friends. Every single time, right? You're, you're supposed to not pray to any other god but to who? The king. The, the king of Babylon. Pray to him. Don't pray to anyone else. Or in this case, it wasn't Babylon. It was um, Cyrus or Darius. I always get this confused. Anyway, um, you're praying to the king. Instead of to God. Daniel refused to do that. He's persecuted. Same thing happens now. There's this huge idol that's created. Music is being played to try to get everyone just to bow down. It's just for uniformity's sake. He doesn't care whether you're really worshiping anybody or not. He just wants to see that everyone's doing what he says. If they don't do it, they're going to be persecuted. We see that again and again. Today, all around the world, Christians who refuse to convert to the religion of that empire, of that Uh, that country, they're persecuted. Christians who refuse to go against their conscience to do what everyone else in the country is doing, they're persecuted. It's again and again, it's a, a uniformity principle. Oftentimes persecution can break out as well when Christians seek simply to say, that's not right. That's a sin. We ought to repent of that. It's not about money. It's not about power. Simply, they don't want to be told that they're doing something wrong. Herodias asked for the head of John the Baptist on the platter, not because she wanted power, not because she wanted money, but simply because John the Baptist had shamed her by pointing out the fact that she's sleeping with her uncle after she left her husband. It angered her so much that she wanted his his head on a platter. King Ahab was extremely irate with Elijah on a number of occasions, but not because of money, not because of power, but simply because he kept pointing out his sin. And in one occasion, he's pointing out the fact that he murdered his neighbor Naboth and stole his vineyard. If you remember, this sounds awfully similar to David. He stole something that belonged to someone else and then murdered in order to cover up his sin. Same thing happens. David repents. Ahab doesn't. Ahab considers Elijah his enemy and calls him the troubler of Israel. And Elijah says, no, you're the troubler of Israel because you're not doing what the Lord God says and you, you're not repenting of your sin. I think in America today we're beginning to see more and more opposition from all three of these types of persecutions. Those who are looking merely for blind obedience and uniformity to the government, those in various businesses, constantly trying to put anyone out of business that doesn't abide by their standards so they can make more money. And then third, also those who simply want to live free of the law of God, free of any accusation that they could be doing something wrong, particularly in regards to sexual sin and murder, particularly in regards to abortion. If you say that it's wrong, this is a worldwide thing, guys. This isn't just America. Worldwide. There are movements afoot that are constantly saying, if you don't agree to this, you ought to be persecuted. Because Christians tend to speak out against these things, that's why persecution arises. Even when the believers don't understand what they're doing, you see, the seed of the woman will continue to strike, excuse me, the seed of the serpent will continue to strike at the seed of the woman again and again. And again, God has promised this enmity from the very beginning. Anyone who is not a follower of Christ, even though they don't know it, they're not their own man. They're not their own woman. They're a follower of the devil. A child of of the God of this world. And thus they're going to clash. Persecution is nothing more than a clash of kingdoms. It's a clash of worldviews. Strangely, The very person that the world curses, that's the person that God blesses. And the person that God curses, that's the person that the world blesses. We're seeing this more and more outright. And Scripture bears that up. James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you want to just get along with the rest of the world and have everybody be happy with you, well, then God's not going to be happy with you. If you try to have God be happy with you, then the world's not going to be happy with you. You don't want to fight. I get it. The problem is the fight exists no matter what. You can't avoid it. That's why persecution is the natural consequence of anyone who seeks to walk with Christ. Christ has come to shine a light in the darkness, and the problem is most people don't want the light. They love the darkness. And you're called to be light. You're called to be salt. And what does salt do? It it burns. It gives life, but it also, it burns when something's not right. It's going to hurt. Light's going to bother you. If you want to live in darkness, you don't want the light to come on. And so you hate it and you want to hurt. And stop whatever it is that's causing your hurt, that's causing you to lose value and what you think is valuable. But instead of uh, this hatred by the world and this persecution being considered the one sort of negative beatitude in our bunch of beatitudes here, notice Jesus doesn't consider this a negative thing at all. This isn't a debit. This is a credit, he says. This isn't like the the one thing that's in opposition to all the other beatitudes. He's saying this is not only blessed, but it's a double blessing. What? (laughs) Twice. Jesus says the persecuted are blessed in these verses. In fact, it's the only beatitude that he actually transitions from the third person, they are blessed, to the second person, you are blessed. He makes it very personal here. He's adding that second blessing. that you will be blessed if you're persecuted. And then in addition to that, this is the only beatitude in which Christ actually makes reference to himself in the beatitudes. He says... When you're persecuted for my name's sake. Now, all of the Beatitudes certainly have to do with Christ, but he makes it even more explicit here. Everything is done because of his name's sake, uh, not because of something else. In fact, uh, we think about it, what he's saying here is not all forms of persecution are blessed by God. Many people are blessed. That have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, but there are many other types of persecution in the world that exist as well. It's not just Christ. That's not the only reason why people get angry and get upset and want to hurt others. Uh, there are other religions that are also persecuted, right? You you have Muslim uh, countries that if, if Hinduism is growing, Hinduism will be persecuted, right? And, and vice versa. Uh, They will fight over those things as well. Christ doesn't promise any type of blessing for other religious persecutions, nor does he promise any type of blessing for political persecution. We're starting to see that more and more in our country today as well. You're not just standing up for political ideals here and saying you'll be blessed. No, it's not that even. Nor will you be blessed simply because you were persecuted because of your your gender or because of your race or because any other identity or affinity that you have. It still hurts. It's still a horrible thing. It's miserable. But God doesn't promise blessing for those things. He only promises blessing for those who are persecuted for His name's sake. So that even excludes those of us who are more obnoxious as Christians. You're not promised to be blessed because you're obnoxious and because you're mean spirited and because you say things that you ought not to say. You're not blessed because you're looking for persecution. Bring it on trying to start fights. No, he says, you're b- to be a peacemaker, you're trying to make peace. You're not looking to be persecuted. It just comes naturally because you're salt and you're light, right? In fact, Peter says, uh, you know, you ought not to expect um, to be blessed in any sense uh, because of these things. He says, if if you're being persecuted because of your own sins, your own crimes, that's that means nothing. He says, let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even a meddler. You know, there are Christians that are meddlers too, right? Don't be a meddler. You're just trying trying to cause controversy. So that, that's not a blessing. It's only those who are blessed because of Christ, identifying with Christ, telling others about Christ, telling others about the kingdom of Christ and his teachings. Again, Christians aren't looking to seek out persecution. What they're doing is they're simply seeking to please Christ. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness and that offends people because they don't like righteousness. And so you naturally stick out like a sore thumb. You don't have to go looking for persecution. It comes to you. Uh, I like the way Flannery O'Connor once said it. She says, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. The problem is the world doesn't like holy oddities. It loves unholy oddities. It loves freaks of nature. It loves it for the entertainment value alone. But if you're an odd person in the holy way, know that the world will hate you. Especially if you claim that Christ is the only way to heaven. That there's no other name under heaven whereby man may be saved that he's the way, the truth, and the life, you can expect to be hated. It's going to happen. Or as the, the Japanese proverb says, the nail that sticks out gets hammered. The world says keep your head down, fall in line, do what everybody else does, say what everybody else says, and you'll live a happy life. But you stick out. You're going to get hammered. Therefore, the Christian employee will naturally receive the ire of the unethical boss who's trying to get him to do things that he ought not to do. The Christian student will naturally be at odds with the liberal professor who's constantly trying to say that Christianity is a sham. The Christian leader will naturally be hated by the masses of the wicked no matter what, which is why, again, I'll say I will never run for political office. Be hated in every possible way he says the Christians shouldn't be surprised at all by this. Peter says that very plain. Why are you surprised at this trial? Why are you surprised at this persecution? In fact, the way the scripture puts it, Christians should be surprised if it doesn't happen. Because it's so common to Christians. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be happy. Yes, that's true. But he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. Not some. All. Acts 14.22, Paul tells the believers, after explaining to them some of the persecutions he's gone through, he says, we must all go through many tribulations before entering the kingdom of heaven. We all must go through many. So even if you hold to one of those pre-trib tribulations, end-time scenarios, you're still going to go through a trip. Everyone does. In fact, the way John begins the book of Revelation, he's writing to those who are in tribulation with him at that moment. No one avoids tribulation. No one. In fact, the Augsburg Confession of Faith, which is the Lutheran, the primary confession of faith that's used in the Lutheran church, it defines the church this way, the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Not holding back any punches. He says, This is the community of the martyrs. The persecution is not merely the mark of an apostle, it's not merely the mark of a super Christian, it's the mark of a Christian. Every Christian will experience some form of persecution. Just as Jesus was mocked and reviled, so too will you be mocked and reviled just as they uttered all kinds of false things against Him, so they will bear false testimony against you because you are a follower of Christ. It will happen. Not might. It will happen. And as His followers, we should not only consider these aspects of persecution as a sign of God's blessing, but we're even exhorted to rejoice and be glad that it's happening. In fact, Luke adds, and to leap for joy... When was the last time you leapt for joy at persecution? That's literally what it teaches. Leaping for joy, like a calf out of the, the stall. We know that these are not normal human reactions. Most people <laughs> uh, don't rejoice at suffering. Most people are, aren't happy when others think badly of them, but rather ashamed. Uh, they're not rejoicing, but rather afraid when others seek to hurt them. Naturally, we become bitter and angry when others abuse us and, and treat us badly. But here we're not called to retaliate. Uh, we're not called to back down in fear. We're not called to merely grin and bear it. We're actually called to rejoice and be glad when these things happen. And and, and you'll see that's exactly what happens to the disciples from the very beginning, Acts 5, verse 41, after the day of Pentecost, after they're all filled with the Spirit and they're ready to go and they begin to preach the gospel, immediately there's opposition. Immediately there's a bighorn ram in their path saying, nay. Immediately they're imprisoned, they're tried, and they're beaten for preaching the gospel of Christ. And then they're let off with the warning saying, never preach in this name ever again. These are the same 11 disciples in the new guy <laughs> who were running for their lives in the Garden of Gethsemane. But now, with the power of the Spirit, now their understanding of the resurrection of Christ, now with the, the fullness of identifying themselves with him in every way, their excitement for the cause of Christ, as soon as they're released, they're up there, woohoo! This is great! We were persecuted. Literally, go back and read it. Acts 5.41. They're rejoicing that they were able to share in the dishonor of Christ. They were rejoicing that they were able to share in suffering for His name's sake. Go back and read it. This is not made up. (laughs) And then what we see, immediately after the rejoicing, is then they go back into the temple and say, Jesus is Lord! And then they go back into, it says, house to house and continue to preach the gospel just after they were told never to speak his name again. And they're rejoicing. And they're saying, bring it on. Because they have a different understanding of the gospel of Christ than they did before. Christ had died for them. they were willing to share that fate with him. They didn't consider it a, a curse, but rather a blessing. Jesus says that this is, this is how you know you're a child of God. <laughs> you're persecuted. This is how you know you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. He also says that you also will have an affinity with the prophets of old because they also went through all of these same things. Uh, David uh, Grundyke had just read about David the king in, in Psalm 69, about just one of the many times that he underwent suffering and persecution from King Saul and from many others as well. I mean, if you look at how many psalms he's writing from his sufferings and being persecuted for his righteousness, it's again and again. Elijah being pursued by Ahab, Daniel and his three friends, as we mentioned already, Nehemiah continually facing opposition. If you go back and read the book of Nehemiah in its entirety, I mean, look at how many times he's being persecuted simply because he's trying to get the people to live righteously and to separate themselves from the ungodly, and yet they don't want to do that. And these apostles would follow in their footsteps. He says, this is the norm. This is the way it's meant to be. In fact, in Luke's gospel, um, he has another version of the Sermon on the Mount, but in his version, he doesn't just focus on the Beatitudes, he also focuses on the opposite, the woes that are presented to those who have the opposite experience, the opposite perspective. Luke 6, verse 26, he says, Woe to you! When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted, for so they did with the true prophets. But if everyone speaks well of you and everyone likes you, (laughs) and you're popular with the masses of the world, watch out. Woe to you, he says. Of course, the early church didn't have to explain this to the believers because they all began to experience it almost immediately. The opposition, the persecution, the question didn't center on whether one had to be persecuted, but rather, how do you respond when it breaks out? Because they all were facing it immediately. In fact, um, there were many that began to fall away from their profession of faith, fall away from that gospel, if you will, when they underwent persecution for the first time. The parable of Sower tells us that there are many that will immediately receive the gospel with joy, but as soon as persecution comes, they prove that they never really understood the gospel to begin with. And it got to the point early on, after a number of rounds of persecution broke out, that there were many people, they called them the lapsed Christians, that left the church, left their profession of faith, and as soon as someone came into power that now the Christian Christianity could be legal again and was safe to be a Christian, they all wanted to come back in the church. And it was a major division in the life of the church because you'd have a church, you say say uh, say this is our church this morning, say so you had 50 people outside the doors that all had denied Christ under persecution and they're all wanting to come in. And now we're holding a congregational meeting voting on whether or not to let them come back in. Literally, it came down to where half of the church said, no, they denied Christ. They proved themselves to be false, false professors. The other half said, well, Peter did too, and so did most of the disciples. Should we not forgive them as well and let them back in? And it was a huge hubbub. I and mean, we're talking uh, many years they struggled over this. This was a common problem in the early church of what to do with those people who had denied Christ. Eventually, they decided to let them come back in with the proof of repentance and and what have you, but also with the exhortation, the warning, don't do it again. (laughs) Don't deny Christ. You know how dangerous that is. Anyone who doesn't acknowledge me before men, so I will not acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. So after watching many of their close friends and family members be put to death, you can see how Many of the church didn't want to let the other ones come back in. They're like, we were faithful, you weren't. You know, The church would have plenty more opportunities to, to face that same persecution over the next 2,000 years. The 20th century alone, there have been more persecutions than ever previously altogether. It's estimated that 450,000 Christians were martyred per year in the 20th century. 450,000 per year throughout the world. Now the the figures are estimated that 200 million Christians each year are now denied basic human rights due to their allegiance to Christ. They're not all put to death, but they're being persecuted in some way. Around the world, 200 million. That's the norm now. I certainly hope, and I've said it before, that none of us will have to shed our blood uh, for the purpose of sealing our testimony and our faith in Christ, but, but we will all be persecuted if we stand with Christ. We all will be mocked and slandered and hated and opposed because of our faith in Jesus, no matter how nice you are. I think that's the heart part. I'm, I'm especially sensing that from the younger generations that in their minds they are like, well, we just have to be nicer and nicer and nicer, no matter how nice you can be. Was Jesus not nice? In every way and yet they still hated him. You couldn't be more loving than Christ, and yet they still sought to put him to death. It has nothing to do, again, you don't want to be unnice, you don't want to be mean, but you need to be very specific and forthright and bold, not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, not ashamed to point out sin when it's sin. You have to be able to do that. The Lord promises to reward that faithfulness with your place in the kingdom of heaven. But you can see why Karl Marx and others like him have said, you know, Christianity is the opiate of the masses. Okay, all you have to look forward to is a, a kingdom in the future where you can enjoy the good life, but now you enjoy a horrible life because of your faith in Christ. That's, that's the way it's perceived. But, but what persecution actually does in the life of the believer, it helps him or her to break that hold of the world upon them to begin to see that there is another world that's upside down, if you will, from this one. Totally, entirely different from this one in which a world of love really does exist. A world in which Christ reigns fully. A world that we ought to be longing for. That's what Jesus means when he says, yours will be the kingdom of heaven. There is a real kingdom, a righteous kingdom where Christ reigns and that's coming, it's going to invade this world. But in the meantime, persecution continues to remind us of that, to help us to see where we fall in our faith in that regard. Probably the most obvious blessing associated with persecution is how it actually shows us our faith of how weak or how strong it is. It's, it's purposely a, a tool that God uses. Again, even persecution is not something that God is not in control of. He even orders it. You remember Shimei in the Old Testament? S-H-I-M-E-I, I think that's spelled. Remember when he was a descendant of uh, King Saul of Benjamite and began to curse David, throw rocks at him? Do you remember what David said in response? He said, perhaps it's the Lord's will that he does this to me. Not for any particular sin that I've committed at this moment, but for many others that I've committed perhaps. But the point is, he firmly believed that it was the Lord who had brought him to this occasion, and he didn't. Uh, immediately retaliate in that regard. Think of it, every single time someone is bringing persecution upon you, even that's the Lord's will. The Lord is continuing to establish that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Because if there's not that enmity, what will happen? You'll become very good friends with the world again. And you'll think, you know what, it's not so bad after all. Maybe that other kingdom, maybe that doesn't even exist. Maybe I'm okay living the same way everyone else does. But you'll notice as Paul undergoes more and more persecution, he begins to desire Christ more. Philippians 3 verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. But he says, particularly, he says, and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. No sane person would say that. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. In other words, I want to be harmed as he's harmed and insulted as he's insulted and inflicted as he's inflicted. Undergo the same tribulation. Why? Because I want to know him. I want to know I'm his. I want to know uh, that I will have that same reward that he has and enjoy that same kingdom that he has promised to me. So Paul joins the, the long rank of disciples that all served as martyrs. As most of you know, Paul would later be beheaded under the reign of Nero, just as James was. Whereas Peter would be crucified for the sake of the gospel, so too would his brother Andrew. Philip was, traditionally we're told, was hanged on a pillar. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Thomas was run through with a lance, and Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Only John lived into a ripe old age. But only after being imprisoned for many years on the island of Patmos, only after many years of hard labor, would he receive the kingdom of heaven. What about us? Are we still afraid of a little opposition? We have not yet come to the point of shedding blood. Are we still ashamed of the gospel of Christ in a land where we still have the freedom to say the name of Christ and preach the gospel of Christ. I remember uh, my sister uh, who passed away a few years ago, she used to have a, a tag, a license tag on the back of her car that says, Got to be true. <laughs> uh, it was from one of those Stephen Kirst Chapman songs way back when. I got to be true. I say that I believe in Christ, and am, am I going to live that faithful life unto Christ? I got to be true. I was thinking of it this way. <sighs> It's only those who love Christ who are willing to stand with Christ. That's all there is to it. Um, You generally love and defend those uh, that you identify with. Um, Say you had a a younger brother or sister, and you saw uh, some bullies coming up to your sibling and making fun of them and mocking them and later even trying to hit them over the head. Would you just stand there and watch it? Just stand back and do nothing? No. No you'd stand up for your sibling. You'd stand with your brother or your sister. That's what you would do. And what happens here is all Christ is saying is that he's laid down his life for you out of love for you, and if you love him in return, you will naturally stand with him too. But if you don't, it just shows that you never really understood the love of Christ to begin with. You, you never really got the gospel Something else was much more valuable to you. And so I, I think that's the purpose of these Beatitudes is to help us to examine ourselves. What do I value? Do I value the things of the world? And because I value those things, I'm afraid to stand with Christ. Or do I value the gospel? Has it not made a worldview change in every way in my life to where now I want to stand with Christ I want to stand with his kingdom. I want to stand with his gospel. And come hell or high water, I'm going to continue to stand. That's the question for us today. Uh, The Lord gives grace to his people. We're all naturally cowards. (laughs) We are. But the Lord gives a boldness and a love to his people that they never knew. And he'll give it to you. You ask him for it. And when the day of trial comes and when persecution comes and it will come, may we be ready. May we be faithful even unto the end. Let's pray together. Father, we We are weak. We are foolish. We are mixed in our emotions, mixed in our desires, mixed in our loyalties, and we know that uh, none of us uh, from the very beginning of our walk with Christ walks well. We pray, Lord, that you continue to give us the the grace of God, not merely to know our place in heaven, but to know how to live here and now that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would hate our sins, that we would seek and long for the kingdom of heaven, that we would seek to make sure that the name of Christ is known here and now, to remember that we are His spokesmen, His ambassadors, His reflection, the image of God and righteousness, knowledge and holiness. Lord, help us to, To reflect that, even in our inconsistencies, even in our sins. Lord, help us to point to Christ. And on the day when the challenge comes, Lord, help us to stand. We pray, Jesus.